Good morning, Capshaw. I'm Jessica. Welcome to In The Know. If you are a guest with us today, we are so glad that you're here and are thrilled that you chose to worship with us. If you have not already done so, you can fill out our virtual connect card by going to capshaw.org slash connect card, or you can scan the QR code in the seat back in front of you. We would love the opportunity to get to know you better. Now, let's find out what's going on around campus. Attention Capshaw students, join us on December the 2nd for the cozy Christmas party. Don your favorite Christmas attire and join us for a night of fun, giveaways, and worship. Food will be at 545 and the service will start at 6.30 p.m. You won't want to miss it. It's almost time for our highly anticipated performance of a Capshaw Christmas. There will be two chances to attend, one on Saturday, December the 12th, and then one on Sunday, December the 13th, both beginning at 6.30 p.m. This time of special worship in song and through the spoken word is just what we all need this holiday season. Please share and invite your family and friends to join us for a Capshaw Christmas. You can RSVP at capshaw.org events. We hope to see you there. Just a quick reminder before we go, there are many things that you can do at capshaw.org. You can get general information, find out about upcoming events, as well as give. As always, if you have any questions, you can email the church office at info at capshaw.org. I hope you all have a great week. Now let's get ready to worship. Good morning, Capshaw. Please stand as we open this service with a scripture reading. This week's scripture is 2 Corinthians 7 through 15. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have this same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who is raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that you, as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Please continue standing as we continue in worship. Only a holy God. 
Well, good morning. I want to welcome you to service today and, and just tell you how much, how great it is uh, to be with you today and to see your faces here. Uh, for those joining us online, we're just so thankful to be able to be together. Uh, I was reminded so much as we sang the beauty. I, I wish sometimes you all had the opportunity to get to hear the voices coming at you. I guess in COVID days, that's not the best idea, but, uh, but to be able to hear these voices united in praise of God. And I tell you what, that's what we're here about at Capshaw is to glorify God above, to be part of his wonderful purposes here on the earth. And a, being a part of that is figuring out a way to connect, connect to one another, and then connect to the ministries that are here at Capshaw. The best way to do that is, is uh, through um, relationships and, and forming those relationships. We want to give you some help. And so what we use here at Capshaw is a connect card. For those of you online, you can go to capshaw.org slash connect card. Uh, or in the backs of the seats, there's a scan code there that you can go and, and find an, an online card. And again, I, I know it's, it can often be a refrain here, but I want you to know how important that is. It's important for you to find those that you can connect with and share things that you need prayer requests for. To share ways that, that maybe God's calling your heart to search for him. And I promise you, this is more than just taking a few minutes to fill in a little information. This is your opportunity to join together. And so I invite you to do that. You can find other ways to serve. Um, and one of those opportunities to come together will be, I just want to mention again, the Capshaw Christmas coming up here in just a few weeks. So the 12th and 13th, be a Saturday and Sunday evening. And uh, I promise you that the heart there is not to put on a show. It's to worship together as we go into the, to the season of Advent. And I know that's the desire of everyone you'll see here uh, the desire of all we do here at Capshaw. So looking forward to a great day in his word, praying for the word to be shared and for our hearts to be open to it. Let's continue our worship. Sings together. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded cypress flow be of sin the double true. Simply to the cross. 
Such beautiful stuff. Thank you, Pastor Chris and worship team. Go ahead and have a seat, church family. Uh, hello, church family and friends of Capshaw. I know that, uh, as John, one of our elders mentioned, we have a number of folks watching online, some who uh, would prefer to be here but can't because of quarantine and other things, and uh, some who are just staying away to uh, remain extra cautious. So uh, greetings to you if you're watching online. I know we have some college students who will be heading home uh, today or tomorrow. In fact, my own daughter said she was going to be watching the service this morning from California. So, uh, good morning, Lives. Love you. I'm glad you're with us. And uh, uh, we're excited uh, to, that we can gather together and look at the Word of God. Uh, I, I do want to say this. If you're watching online, uh, which I know doesn't apply to anyone in here, but uh, Justin, who's our tech director, said that we usually lose about 30% of the people. As soon as the sermon is over and I say amen, people kind of turn the TV off. But I want to say this. We have a new song of lament that we're going to sing uh, together at the after the sermon, and so you won't want to miss just a beautiful, beautiful song of lament that that I think uh, accurately captures the spirit of the uh, the passage we've been looking at. So we look forward to that. Let's pray together, and we'll get into the word. Uh, our Father in heaven, we thank you that uh, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and we encounter. Uh, trials and temptations and setbacks uh, at every side, we know that you are faithful and that your mercy and goodness will follow us. In fact, I think a better way to read that is it will keep pursuing us. You will continue to overwhelm us with your love and your mercy and your kindness and your grace. And Father, we praise you for that. And that's where we find our comfort. And the fact that you are unchanging, you are the glorious one, you are, as the book of Isaiah says, the famous one, the one whose fame and glory shall extend to the uttermost parts of the earth. And Father, we pray this morning you'd be glorified and exalted in what we do. We pray that you would <clears throat> give us wisdom and humility and joy as we approach your scriptures, and we pray that you would teach us by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, 
And uh, if you are new to our church or you just missed last week, uh, we're in a three-week series through the Old Testament book of Habakkuk called God in the Dark. Uh, Habakkuk was a prophet who ministered to the southern kingdom of Judah uh, around the early 600s B.C. And what was happening was Habakkuk was able to watch and see the spiritual, moral, and religious decline of the nation that he so dearly loved. And so as he's seeing these things happening, he cries out to God. And what we have in the book of Habakkuk really is a prophet's journey, you might say. He's wrestling with God. Uh, He's complaining to God about God, which is an interesting uh, dynamic there. He is trying to figure out what in the world, God, are you doing? Have you ever been in a scenario in your life where you're trying to figure out, God, what, what are you doing here? Because I, I look around and I, I just can't see it. I can't see how this could ever turn out for good. I can't see your sovereign hand in this. I really have no idea what to make of what you're doing. And this is where Habakkuk was. Again, he, he's wrestling with God. He's looking out on this nation and he is just overwhelmed with concern, with burden, with grief. There are three things that were going on that we talked about last week. Uh, The first thing is there's violence everywhere. So the streets are filled with violence. And everywhere Habakkuk turns, he sees people being persecuted, uh, predominantly the people who were followers of the God of the Bible, Yahweh. So most people had rejected the God of the Bible and and his law, but there were some who still maintained uh, their faithfulness to God, and they were being persecuted even violently. That was one thing going on. A second thing going on is there was a growing famine in the land. Someone uh, texted me this week a picture of uh, the aisles at Target, the toilet paper aisles, and and here we are again. Everything is gone. I mean, just barren wasteland in these aisles. Well, I mean, that's that's disconcerting, and it can become an emergency, I guess, at the wrong time. But what was going on in Judah was worse than that. The grains, the produce, the wine, the, the, the grapes of the vine, all of those things were withering and, and all of a sudden, the people were finding that they were in great need. And a third thing that was happening is, is there was the, the threat of the invasion by the Babylonians to Judah. And we saw last week Babylonia, the, the Babylonians were a ruthless and bloodthirsty people. In fact, God himself says about the Babylonians, they come for violence. Death is on their minds. They collect victims like squirrels collect nuts. They are a dreadful and terrible people who make up the rules as they go along. That's Eugene Peterson's uh, translation on Habakkuk chapter 1. So, so all that's going on, and Habakkuk is trying to make sense of this, and he says, God, I don't know what to do. How could you possibly bring more violence to put an end to the violence we're experiencing? So he actually complains to God. And he complains, frankly, as we saw last week, in a way that I think is a little, it's a little unnerving as we see his complaints. But Habakkuk doesn't just complain. He doesn't just voice his concerns to God. He does something else. So let's look at the text together, beginning with Habakkuk 2. Some of you are still trying to find Habakkuk, and that's okay. Um, We're going to start, I'm going to cover the whole chapter. Let me begin by reading verse 1. Here reads the word of the Lord. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. 
and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So one of the challenges, of course, of interpreting the scripture is, is, is we have to understand the, the cultural, historical context then is very different than now. And now we have GPS, global positioning satellites, and so on, and so we know kind of where people are, and we can keep track of our children, and so on. Of course, none of that was around then. And if a, if a group of people wanted to stay protected and keep an eye on, on, on potential threats, there was a watchtower that was at the edge of the community. It was an elevated place, an elevated platform. And the, the, the watchman would go, and he would look out as far as he could see in the distant horizon. And whenever he would see something surfacing over the horizon, some, a shadow or something that was moving or whatever, he would then alert the appropriate people. Well, Habakkuk says he's going to go to the watchtower, and he's going to wait. Only what he's waiting for, what he's looking for is not... The, a threatening nation at this point. He's actually eagerly anticipating a word from the Lord. So he's going and he's, he's listening. He has prepared his heart for what God would say. Now this is not, of course, the, the first time we see in the Scriptures a prophet of God going to a hidden place and pursuing God intently. Remember the situation with Moses who hid himself in the cleft of the rock and, and waited. He stood in waiting, we're told, for God in his glory to pass by. Later on, Elijah was commanded to go to the mountain and, quote, stand in waiting for the revelation of God that would come. And it's not the main point in this passage, but I, but I do think it's worth pointing out, and maybe even by way of a question, in your regular rhythm, your rhythm of life, do you have times where you set aside and you're quiet before the Lord? Now, people say to me, you know, I pray when I run, and I, I pray when I clean, and I pray when I drive, and, and those are all fine things. Those are all terrific things, but they can't really constitute the fullness of our prayer lives. Um, Jesus himself, who, of course, we know was closer to God than anyone, in fact, John tells us, was one with the Father. Uh, we're told in the Gospels he frequently withdrew to lonely places to pray. And so do we have that regular rhythm where we are quiet and alone with God? Habakkuk did. And we saw last week that when he gets alone with God, he shares his complaints. He shares his concerns. He is very open with God. Uh, and we saw again last week that God desires our honesty. He can handle our complaints. In fact, he actually wants us to be fully transparent with him because we come with that level of honesty. It reveals our belief that he's actually there, that he's a real person and that he can truly help us. So it's a good thing, not a bad thing, to be open and honest with God. But God doesn't just want to hear from us, although he wants that. He doesn't just want us to speak. He also wants us to listen, which means seeking him in his revelation, his word. It means not looking for some new vision, some new dream or nightmare or whatever it is, but it means actually approaching God as he has revealed himself in his word by his spirit. It means prayerfully listening to what God has already said to us in his word and by his son. When I was very early in ministry, maybe, maybe year two as I recall, and uh, there were three ladies who wanted to meet with me from the church to talk about some concerns they had about children's ministries and student ministries. And so, just getting to know people, and I said, of course, yeah, I'd, I'd love to sit down with you. And they said, we don't want to meet at the church because we don't want anyone to see us, and we, we want this to be a real, you know, sort of 
uh, private things so we're not judged by anyone. And so they said, can we meet in a coffee shop? I said, yeah, let's, let's meet somewhere close to town. We ended up meeting this little Greek restaurant, kind of a hole in the wall about a mile or two from the church. And when I sat down with him, I, I got up my moleskin, my, uh, you know, my journal and a, and a pencil. And I said, okay, yeah, t- tell me, share with me what's going on. Like, what, what, what's, what's bothering you? So they started to list some concerns they had, uh, some, you know, perhaps legitimate, some I think that were way off base. And so I'm sitting there, I'm writing things down, I'm, I'm asking follow-up questions. And, and if I didn't understand something, I asked for clarification. I didn't realize it. But before long, I had been there almost three hours listening, which I was kind of proud of myself. I didn't know I could ever listen to anybody for that long. But I'm sitting there for three hours listening and writing things down. Um, and then after about three hours, I said, okay, well, let me, let me respond to your concerns. They said, oh, no, we don't want you to respond. We just wanted you to listen. I said, well, wait a second. Like, I've just listened for three hours. I've never done that before in my life. You, you, I, you don't want me to respond? I mean, shouldn't your pastor have an opportunity to respond? They said, no, we don't want you to respond. We actually have to go to pick up our kids. We just wanted you to listen. And I was a little bothered by that, frankly. Well, imagine how God feels if we bring our concerns and complaints to him, which we, which we saw he delights in us doing. But we don't want to listen to him. We're not willing to search the scriptures to see what he has revealed about himself. We're not willing to go and quietly sit before the Lord in prayer, depending upon His Spirit. We're not willing to see what God says about Himself, us, His sovereign grace, the world that He's made, and this glorious plan of salvation. See, no one would dispute Habakkuk's directness with God. In fact, as I pointed out, there have been some throughout history, some commentators, some biblical scholars going all the way back to the second century, that said, no, this, is, this was all wrong. I mean, he should never have talked to God like that. They call it uh, impudent, which is a word that just means not showing due respect. And so they're saying, no, this is not the way we should talk to God. We saw last week that God actually desires that from us. He desires that sort of openness and honesty. But he also wants to come with soft hearts. He wants us to come with supple hearts. He wants us to do like Habakkuk did and actually take the initiative to hear God. Habakkuk says in verse 1, I will look out to see what God will say to me. Notice the sense of anticipation. There is a palpable longing for God's response. Old Testament scholar uh, Palmer Robertson has what I would say is probably the best commentary on Habakkuk I've seen. He says this, Both the humility and the hope of the prophet provide appropriate direction for the church through the ages. God's ways are higher than our ways. Only by revelation can the genuine perplexities of God's dealings with human beings be comprehended. So here's the first thing I want you to see this morning. This is our first point if you're taking notes. While God delights in our honest complaints, He is equally concerned about our willingness to listen to him. See, there is a, there is a humanistic, there's a man-centered, might call it egotistical, arrogant way to approach things, and I know my heart is inclined in this direction. I'll just be honest with you. And that is, I can figure this out, right? I, I, I can analyze the data. I can look at it. I can look the whole picture. I can figure this out. I can determine what is the best course of action for my life. I've got this. I can manage my own life. But what we see in the Scriptures is that that sort of human wisdom is failing. 
Rather than depending on God's wisdom, God's divine word, trusting in his revelation, what we tend to do is trust in our own insight. John Calvin, the reformer, says rather bitingly, all who indulge themselves in their own counsels deserve to be forsaken by God, to be left by him, to be driven up and down, and here and there by Satan, for the only unfailing security for the faithful is to acquiesce to God's word. Now we know, of course Calvin knew this, we know that God never forsakes his people. He never forsakes his own. He doesn't write us off. He gently and tenderly disciplines us, and he discloses to us over time his broader intentions. Look at verses 2 and 3. Here's the Lord's answer. Habakkuk says, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Now, when you hear the word vision that I just read in verse 2, don't think dream, don't think hallucination, don't think nightmare. It's this Hebrew word, chasan, which sometimes does mean dream, as it does in the book of Daniel. But here, it's a reference to uh, a, divine, a word from God, a word of instruction or a word of, of judgment. And here, it's actually a word of judgment that God actually reveals. And when God would reveal a word of judgment, a, a chatzan, a vision to his prophet, it was as clear as if they were reading it right in front of them. So this is what Habakkuk sees. Uh, and God, God says, write this down. Apparently, it would require multiple tablets. We read that in the plural, which would have been made up most likely of stone, Habakkuk was to write down a prophecy that would be fulfilled in a future day. And the point of writing it down was, was, was multifaceted. But one reason is so that God himself, in a manner of speaking, could be held accountable. Now, I say that, you have to understand that the, the way that I say that, it was these tablets would serve as a witness to the reliability of God. God says, write it down. You can hold me to it. If it seems slow... Wait for it. It's going to happen. You can count on it. Uh, Janine and I were watching a television show last week um, about a, it's a detective series set in, in downtown Los Angeles. And, and the main protagonist of the show is this kind of irascible, outside the box sort of, uh, you know, homicide detective. And, um, you know, he's always getting into trouble with his mouth and so on. Well, this lady approaches him and, and, She's been tailed by a strange car. So every time she's driving, she's looking in the rear view. She sees this car behind her. So she says to the detective, she's just terrified and afraid, and the detective says to her, says to her uh, nothing is going to happen to you. I will make sure nothing happens to you, I promise. And when I heard that, I kind of chuckled, and Janine said, what, what a, was something funny? Did I miss something? I said, no. You, you, but whenever I hear someone make a promise of that nature, it strikes me as a little bit humorous because the reality is we, we can't promise somebody that. How, how are we going to promise somebody that nothing will happen to them? How are we going to make guarantees like that? And, of course, and actually in the show, the same lady the next day was having lunch at a little bistro in downtown, downtown L.A. She gets up, tries to go to her car, two, two people riding on motorcycles and fully uh, all black with helmets on. They end up shooting her. She dies. So this guy's promise was not very reliable. And the thing is, we can't make those sorts of promises. We can't say that nothing's going to happen. We can't say, I promise you, you'll never go through this. You'll never do that. 
But when God makes a promise, as the sovereign one, as the creator and sustainer, as the author of history, when he says he will do something, no one can stop him. No one can stop God, as Job said in his, in his reflections. You know, no one can thwart your plan. No one can stop the plan of God. When God says it will happen, it will happen. And God tells Habakkuk to write these things down plainly on tablets, verse 2, so that he may run who reads it. Now, this is important. It's all important, but, but this phrase stands out because these tablets that God is talking about here are not meant to be encased in some monument somewhere that people will go and visit or just pass by. The language here, the imagery of something you can take with you as you carry along, as you run along. There's a sense of urgency. The inscription of the vision suggests that it is something that generation after generation should rush to declare. Now, here's our second point, very simply. God expects His people to run with His message. Now, as I'm sitting in my office and I'm working on Wednesday and Thursday and sermon prep and I'm wrestling with the text and so on, and I realized that this is what God was saying, I have to be candid with you, I was very convicted because I don't run with the message with the sort of urgency that is actually prescribed here. I know my neighbors on, on, on every side. I know my, my right neighbor, my left neighbor across the street, the folks who live in back of me, but, but I don't have a sense of urgency like I should in, in reaching them with this message. God expects his people to run with his message. Well, what is the message? What did God have Habakkuk write? What's, what's on the tablets? Look at verses 4 and 5. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who's never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So what God had Habakkuk write down was an indictment against the wicked, namely... Those who are puffed up with self-reliance, self-righteousness, those who are using other people to advance their own cause. Uh, This is the person who his soul is puffed up, verse 4, over and against the righteous who lives by faith. Now, we're going to come back to that uh, in just a few minutes, that phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. But what God is doing here is he's saying that the, the wicked will surely be judged. Just as the drunk man who falls prey to the sparkle of wine in the jar, just as death is never satisfied with enough, but always claims more and more victims, just as surely as those realities, the wicked shall be punished, the wicked shall be judged. And Habakkuk needs to hear this. Remember, he's looking out at all the wickedness in his world and all the violence. He's saying, God, why? Why aren't you doing something? Remember that very uh, uncomfortable thing he said to God last week? Where are you? You put iniquity right in front of my face. I'm looking at it. You've made me see it, but you're nowhere to be found. So he needed that. And I think we need to hear it just as much as Habakkuk did. Some Christians live in such a state of fear that they're always uneasy. They're always anxious. In fact, they're terrified. They look at what's going on in the world politically, morally, ethically, religiously, however you want to say it, and and they're absolutely scared to death. 
And they say, where is our world going? Because everything I see seems to indicate that this world is absolutely going down the tubes. And so they live in fear. They're in fear of getting sick. They're in fear of presidential elections. They're in fear of political climate. They're in fear of... So they just live in constant fear. And just like Habakkuk, we need to hear from God that he's actually working things out according to his own plan. He's still in control. He's still sovereign. Judgment will come, but after that, deliverance for the faithful. Here's our third point. The pervasive perception that wickedness will prosper is a deceptive lie. In the end, God's judgments always prevail. So what I mean there by all that alliteration is that we look out at the world and everything seems to scream. The, the control has been lost. No one is in control. This world is an absolute mess. Everything around us seems to suggest that evil will prevail. But God says, no, that's not the way it's going to work. Everything may look like that. But my judgment will prevail in the end. Now, the, the rest of chapter 2 is made up of what's called these five woes to Babylon. Five woes against the Babylonians or Chaldeans. And um, these are spe- specific pronouncements of judgment on all those who uh, try to make a name for themselves by their own work, their own advancement, those who are resting in their own abilities or accomplishments. So let me just quickly run through these five woes. Verses uh, 6 through 8. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people, this is a reference to the, those who survived the invasion of the Babylonians, shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. So this is a, this is a reference, this is an indictment against those who defraud other people by taking from the helpless what doesn't belong to them. And so, you know, again, it's a specific reference in this case to those those Babylonians who have plundered and uprooted uh, those who live in Judah. And God says, actually, those people who survive are actually going to take back what belongs to them. But more broadly, it's a a condemnation against all those who defraud other people. And I think what came to my mind is kind of the low-hanging fruit in terms of an illustration is, is those, for example, who defraud senior adults, you know, it's a, it's a tragic thing to see the number of senior adults who are, who are sort of taken captive by these con artists who call and they promise whatever it is. And what God says is regardless of where it is or how it takes place, those who defraud others will suffer my judgment. Now look at uh, verses 9 and 11, through 11. Woe to him, here's the second woe, who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. For uh, You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. So this is, 
This is an indictment about, uh, not, you know, that, that word house there is more a reference to lineage or dynasty. So this is a reference to the person who stores up money for generation after generation after generation and ends up putting his or her trust in that money. We, we, for us, we could apply and say a retirement account, a nest egg, a pension plan, whatever. This is the one who, because of money that has been saved, believes, I now am safe from harm, verse 10. Nothing can happen to me. And God says, you're absolutely wrong. It, it kind of brings to mind the, there was a rich guy in Luke 12 who he's doing really well. He's making money hand over fist. Things are going really well. And he says, you know what? I've got so many things. I've got so much that I'm going to build bigger barns to store up all my stuff. And what does God say? He comes to this rich ruler and he says, you fool. Tonight, your life shall be required of you. So this is all those who trust in, in their money, their possessions. Look at verses 12 through 14, the third woe. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is an indictment about, uh, of those who oppress the weak, the marginalized, the minority, the written off, and they do it violently in order to promote their own advancement. So this is, though, this is a reference to those, again, who oppress and who take advantage of those who are marginalized. By violently keeping the powerless down, they elevate themselves and glorify themselves. And God says, again, what sort of hubris is this? The earth will be filled with the glory of God like the waters cover the sea. Your glory, you who oppress the weak and marginalize them around you, your glory will be snuffed out. Look at verses 15 through 17, the fourth woe. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Now this is not about somebody getting somebody drunk in order to see them naked. This is, this is poetic language. And nakedness in the scriptures tends to refer to shame or impurity or, or sexual impurity. And what, what God is saying here in this fourth woe is He's pronouncing judgment on those who rope other people in to their sinfulness and their debauchery. So it's the, it's, it's the king of Babylon who's not content just to get drunk himself. He has to bring people, other people in to his drunkenness. It's the people who con and dupe and, and connive other people to bring them in to their sinful ways. Now, why would anybody do that? Well, it's for self-justification. So, you know, if, I, if everybody else is doing this, if I can get other people to do this, it's a way for me to feel better about myself and what does God say? He says, the cup of the Lord's right hand will come upon you. Now, what does the cup of the Lord symbolize? The wrath of God, right? 
the wrath of God. Jesus in the garden, in this moment of absolute sorrow, and he says before the Lord, he says, God, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. But your will be done, not mine. What he's saying is he's looking right at the cross. I mean, not literally. He's, he's anticipating the cross. And he knows that on the cross, the very wrath of God will be poured out on the sinless Savior because of the sins of the world. And he's saying, God, I don't want to be the victim of your wrath if I can help it. But of course, it was necessary for the salvation of the world. And here we see that God is saying to Habakkuk that all those who rope other people into their sinful ways, all those who introduce other people to debauchery, my wrath is reserved for them. Now look at the final uh, woe here in verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. There's no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This, of course, very clearly is an indictment against those who would worship idols. And, of course, in the ancient Near Eastern context, people would fashion little statues of wood or stone or gold or whatever it was, and they would actually bow down to that, that idol, believing that either that idol was a god or that idol was a conduit to the gods. Now, we don't do that. I, there's nobody in this room, I'm pretty sure, who has in their wood shop or whatever, they're making little idols that they worship. But, just as devastating, and dare I say more dangerous, are what the prophets call the idols of the heart. And these are the things that we very subtly put our trust in. These are the things that, that, that we believe will bring us joy and happiness. And if you want to know if you have an idol, just imagine yourself and how you would respond if that particular thing was taken from you. Because if, if it, you know what happens in the Old Testament, when the idols are dethroned, their followers get angry. Their worshipers get angry. So, so if you want to know if you have an idol, it could be anything. It could be security. If it's security, think about this. How would you think about your life if your, your security was gone? It could be health. If, if your health was taken from you, would you conclude, you know, life is not worth living. I have no purpose anymore. could be your financial situation. If, if, if things went belly up for you and you lost everything you had financially, would you conclude, what's the point? What's the point of life? So those idols of the heart, the Lord says, all those who worship idols will be brought to shame because, and he uses a beautiful word picture here, you take, you, you yourself, you form something out of wood and you cover it with gold and then you say to it, arise, now teach me something. It doesn't work like that. There's no breath at all, God says, and there's no hope even for those idols of our heart that we trust in. You see what's going on here? These are all the ways that the Babylonians and we attempt to make a name for ourselves, attempt to advance our own cause, show that we are worth and value, all the things that we look to to find meaning and purpose, God says it's an empty set. You end up with nothing in the end. All who live by idols, all who live according to these principles will end up with nothing. But by contrast, he says, God says in verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. 
Now, I want to spend just a couple minutes looking at that because this is really, this is the central part of this whole book. If there's, a, if there's a single verse to point out in the book of Habakkuk, it's this. In fact, Old Testament scholar and author Heath Thomas says, In many ways, this message, the righteous shall live by faith, constitutes the heart of the teaching of Habakkuk. But what does that mean? What does it mean to see a phrase in the middle of all these pronouncements of woe that the righteous shall live by faith? Well, fortunately for us, we actually have the Apostle Paul who interprets this very phrase in the book of Romans. In fact, uh, we see in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul quotes this very uh, word from Habakkuk. He says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And if you have a little foot, you may have a little footnote in your Bible that, that references Habakkuk uh, here. So the righteous shall live by faith. There's not a better interpretation of any Old Testament passage than a New Testament writer. Because the New Testament writers were carried along, as it were, by the Holy Spirit. So what we actually have is God's commentary on His own revealed Word. And Paul quotes Habakkuk in the context of Romans 1, which is an indictment against all those who are outside of Christ, all those who pursue meaning, purpose, pleasure, apart from the Creator God. What Paul shows us is among all these pronouncements of condemnation, which frankly can be terrifying when we read them, there is a life that is acceptable to God. There is a life that avoids God's judgment. And it's not a life of accomplishment. It's not a life of achieving. It's not even a life of, of the most devoted obedience. It is the life of faith. That is to say, the thing that characterizes the righteous person above all else is an abiding trust in God and His promises. Most specifically, the promise of the coming Redeemer. Here's our final point this morning. Four points this morning instead of three. Throwing some of you off, I know, but uh, bear with me. Uh, the righteous are the ones who trust in God and the one He sent. You know, we read these judgments, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, we say, you know what? Like these, Some of these really describe me. I'm self-reliant. I'm greedy. I'm committed to self-advancement. I rest, in, I rest in my own achievements, my own goodness, my own power, whatever it is. And we read these and we say, surely this is an indictment against us. But the good news is there is a righteousness by which the people of God will be approved. And it is a righteousness that comes from another. It is a righteousness theologians call an alien righteousness. It comes from without, not from within. By believing that we are sinful people in need of a Savior, by believing that Jesus died for our sins, by, by believing that God raised Him from the dead, by believing that in Christ all the fullness of God dwells, we are the people of faith described here. I love what R.C. Sproul says in commenting on this. He says, we must be clear that obedience is never the ground of our acceptance before God. That is what Paul's use of Habakkuk tells us. Those whom the Lord regards as righteous are righteous in His sight before they do anything. 
Christ and His work are the ground of their righteous status, received by faith alone, and their trust and obedience are the fruit of justification, not its cause. So surely those who are redeemed, those who, are, who put their faith in Jesus, they do live a different way. They do live a different way. But it's not by their living, even by their obedience, that they are declared right before God. It's only by trusting in, believing in God and the one He sent. Believing that God actually really does have a sovereign plan that actually includes what's best for us and what's most glorious for Him and actually encapsulates the salvation of the whole world. So even when things look wicked and unjust and evil and all of those things, we actually believe that God is so far ahead of us that He's working even through injustice to bring good to His people and to bring salvation to His world. Let me give you an illustration. Um, there was, a, a, young, there was a, a theologian by the name of J.I. Packer who uh, grew up in a little village in Gloucester, England, actually passed away just this year, July of 2020 at 93. Well, when he was seven years old, little J.I., went by Jimmy then, he was at school, he's playing in the playground, and there was this kid who just kept bullying him relentlessly. And little Jimmy was a bit of a scrawny kid, and so he didn't know what he could do, and so this kid just keeps bullying him. So at one point, Jimmy becomes so frustrated and so scared that he runs all the way out of the school, through the school gate, into the city, into a busy London road, and he gets hit by a bread truck. Now, if you ever, you can do this later, if you Google J.I. Packer, you'll see he has like a big dent in his head. He, he, he had that the rest of his life. Incredibly, incredibly, he actually survived. But for the next four or five years of his life, he had to wear a helmet, a protective helmet. So, because if he ever fell again and hit that same spot, he was surely going to have a brain injury and die. So he had to wear this helmet. So three years later, he's 10 years old, and little Jimmy wants a bike for his birth, or for Christmas, rather. It's all he can think about is he wants a bike. So he asks his parents, can you, will you please get me a bike for Christmas? Well, his parents are, of course, naturally very worried about their son, and they, they know he has to have this helmet. They think if he had a bike wreck, he would die. So they say, well, what do we do? So instead of getting him a bike, they got him a typewriter. Can you imagine the disappointment, right? It's like when I asked my dad for a Commodore 64, uh, and he got me an alarm clock. You know, it's just like, really? Like, the box is the same size, but it's not, not as satisfying. But uh, so, so he, he gets a typewriter for, his, his, for Christmas. And at first, of course, he's like, well, wait a second. I don't want a typewriter. I want a bike like all my friends have. Why do my friends get to ride their bikes, and I have to stay home and, and sit at this typewriter? Why do my friends get, get to do all these things and these adventures, and I, and I don't? But he, he said, you know, he decided he was going to accept it sat down at his typewriter, and he started to cultivate his ability, his skill at writing. He started with some short stories using his imagination, and he started to write. And anybody who writes a lot, you know that you, it's a skill you develop just like anything else. So he starts to write, and he writes some more, and he writes some more. And from that same typewriter came a book that would change the lives of three of your pastors at this church. It was from that typewriter that he would write the notes and begin to write the book, Knowing God. Pastor Chris said the book was so influential in his life that he still gives it as a Christmas gift even today. Pastor Adam said it was the, one of the first books he read as a new believer, and it was one of the most influential books in his life as a Christian. 
For me personally, when I read chapter 13, which is called the grace of God, my mind was blown. It changed the way that I think. It changed the way that I I view Christianity. So think about this. Now, little J.I. Packer had no idea that when he got hit by a bread truck, that that, that by that injustice, God was going to use it to influence pastors all over the globe. But this is what God does. He confounds us with his wisdom. He is a million steps ahead of us. So even though it looks like there's no purpose in this wickedness, there's no hope in all this injustice, our sovereign and good God is working out a plan that is going to be for our good and for the salvation of his people. God is doing a work that we cannot understand. But those who believe, believe that he's doing something in this broken world namely through his son. And they believe that despite their ups and downs and failures and setbacks, that they are actually righteous with God because of Christ. So they live with vigor. They live with gusto. They embrace adventure. You know, people who are in Christ should really be the most adventurous people of all because they know, I have nothing really to fear. What is the worst thing that can happen to me? That my physical life be taken? They live... They embrace adventure. They're not afraid of what's next. They run with the message that God has given them because they know our God is not oblivious to what's going on. He has not disappeared. Even now, He is working and doing something in our world. We may think like Habakkuk in times of distress, this this world is absolutely out of control and there's no hope for it at all. But nothing could be further from the truth. This God, who is sovereign and good and holy, do we think that he would create a world and then step back and let it go to pot? Let me read this. I read this the other day. I found it so beautiful. It's not going to be on the screens behind me, but it's it's a long quote. But I want to close with this because I thought this was so powerful and so fitting uh, for the book of Habakkuk. One uh, author says this, He who fearfully and wonderfully makes every infant in the womb, do you think he is blind to the horrific bloodshed of abortion? He who had nowhere to lay his head, do you suppose he does not hear the cry of the poor, the homeless, and the disenfranchised? He who was executed unjustly by spineless political and religious leaders, Do you think he is unaware of the corruption and cowardice and callousness in the leaders of the church and state today? He who makes every child in his image and likeness, do you think he does not hate racism of every form? Be not deceived. God is not mocked. He is not a judge who winks at evil, evil of any kind, but he is a judge with a heart. He is not a judge with a heart of iron, but a heart of flesh. He is capable both of despising evil and forgiving sinners. For he who sits on the throne, once hung on a cross, he is no domesticated deity. He is the wild savior of humanity who will come to judge the quick and the dead and who daily and zealously cries out in love, Come to me, all you sinners, and wash your robes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb. It gives me goosebumps to think that a God so powerful and majestic and glorious should be so concerned about a rebellious humanity 
But that's the God we serve this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we must confess we are quick to look around at our world and say, what is going on and where are you? And yet, Father, when we consider the bigger picture, of course, a picture that only you see in entirety, we are made acutely aware of the fact that you have not abandoned us. You have not left your world. You've not left us on our own. But you are working even now in every detail. As Spurgeon said, not, not even an atom jumps or, or makes one motion apart from your sovereign design. You're working it all out for our good and your glory. And Father, we ask you now, as we look at our lives and we look at our country and we look at our world and we evaluate our situation, we ask that you would help us, even as we lament, to trust in you. Deepen our trust, we pray. Increase our joy in you. Help us to see clearly your splendor, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Church, you can just remain seated.
isn't that good news that despite our fickle devotion, at least I feel that way, my fickle devotion, the Lord doesn't change. He still loves and cares for you, and uh, He delights in you. And that's, that's an amazing promise and truth that we can rest in this week as we go. And so that was a song of response to His Word. We also have an opportunity now to respond by way of giving. And, uh, you know, we talked about this uh, last week in our Discovering Membership class, just what is a, a picture of a healthy church member, and it's one that gives joyfully and generously, and it's never out of compulsion, it's never out of obligation, um, but is out of delight and joy. And so our, our prayer is that you are stirred, yes, in lament, but also in repentance and faith in the one who who, who has the power and the ability and the means to, to rescue us. Uh, and out of that, out of that, we find joy, we find delight, and, and, and by that we want to give uh, to his mission, what he's doing around the world. And, uh, and so by your faithfulness, we're able to do those kind of things. We're able to partake in ministry both in our backyard and uh, to the ends of the earth. So I want to ask you to give. You can do that online, or you can do that uh, in person here as you're leaving today, uh, or, or even by mail. Uh, and so with that, uh, I'm going to pray that the Lord would, would bless this offering, and then I'll close by way of benediction. Gracious God, our Father, we love you, and we thank you, Father, for, for first loving us and pursuing us, even while we were still sinners. You sent your Son to die for us in our place, as our substitute. God, so help us, Father, help us. We need, we need help. I need your Spirit's help to, one, prompt me and convict me of the sin that I have in my life, but two, to rest in the finished work of Christ on my behalf and not to try to busy myself with works to, to earn favor from you, God. But, but God, I pray that, that uh, out of that work of resting, and believing in Christ, uh, Father, you would help me to find much joy and delight uh, in the finished work of Jesus and not by the burden of the law. Um, and that then at that point we're freed to, 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 to worship you, to serve you, to glorify you with our lives, our resources, everything, Father. They all belong to you. And you are worthy of all of that, all of our praise and all of our thanksgiving, all of our actions and things that we do. So God, we need your help. We need your help. And Lord, we just pray that um, the offering we give is glorifying to you. Lord, we ask all that in Christ's name. Amen. Yesterday, I was uh, thinking through some benedictions. Uh, I'm, I'm actually going to change it up a little bit. But I was thinking about why we do benedictions. And oftentimes, I think sometimes we think about benediction as being a sort of a, a sacred ending. But really, benedictions are not that at all. They're not an ending. They are a transition. They are a bridge from the worship service that we have together to the prayer that we have that you go this week in worship of a holy and righteous God who loves you and cares for you and provides a way of salvation for you. And then also on top of that, not only is the gospel power for salvation, it's the power for 
our growth in Christ's likeness. It's the power and the hope that we look to as you know, the hope that Christ will return and make all things new and turn this broken world back to the way he has. And so what I wanted to do this morning uh, in benediction, not as an ending, but as a transition. And I pray that this, this benediction from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 serves as your fuel for this week as you go. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 5 says, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. You are dismissed.